God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply at the beginning of time. Has he changed his mind in the 21st century? Welcome to Truth Encounter. Dave Wurtson continues our new series, Your Kids and Jesus, as we look at God's Word and learn what it says about the gift of children and the contemporary denial of this gift because of abortion. Dave? I'll never forget back in 1973, I just moved to Midlothian. We moved out here in July, moved in with an old horse trailer and over on Overlook. And my wife Mary was great with child. And in October of that year, October 17th, uh, Jonathan was born. And in those days, I remember, you know, going to the Baylor Hospital and Mary wanted to stay there the shortest amount of time possible so that we could save money. So Mary had Jonathan and I actually held Jonathan in my arms for the very first time as Mary got out of the wheelchair, handed me Jonathan, and we walked out the door of Baylor Hospital to the car. That's the first time I held Jonathan. And I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget the joy, you know, the incredible thrill of that. And every dad that's ever held their firstborn son or their firstborn daughter knows that thrill. That just escalated with, with the birth of Joel and then the birth of Josh and then the birth of Janae. It just got better and better and better. One of the greatest thrills for a mom and a dad is when they hold that newborn child and the miracle. And every dad in this room that's been there when their child was born, you know, a woman's experiencing all of that pain and the struggle of it. And we guys get to sit back and kind of just be enthralled by it and sometimes to faint by it. But there's probably no greater miracle on all the earth to see a little baby born in the union of a husband and wife that generates this new life. You know, when John was born in October 17th of 1973, in January of that year, the Supreme Court heard a case from right here in Dallas, a Texas case. It was the Roe versus Wade case. And it's become very famous. And that was when the Supreme Court made one of the very initial strong statements that opened the door to abortion. And a whole culture that instead of rejoicing in the birth of a child began to focus on individual rights. What I want you to think about today is that you're going to live your life. And your life is going to be strongly influenced by very powerful cultural trends that are like mighty winds that are blowing. In 1973, I just come out of the 60s. Mary and I went to university in the late 60s. We got married in the late 60s. And then we had our first child in 73, the same year that Roe versus Wade was decided. And to be honest with you, even though I was raised in an evangelical home, I wasn't aware of the winds, the powerful winds that were blowing and what was happening. Mary and I made choices as a young married couple about what we would value, what we would live our life for, what we would believe about things. Our culture was making choices. In fact, Chief Justice Blackman, the core of his argument is this woman that was given the name Roe didn't want to have this child. She was healthy. She wasn't married, but she didn't want to have the child. And the state of Texas said that the unborn child in her womb needed to be protected. And she said, no, that this will infringe upon my rights. And Chief Justice Blackman actually wrote these words. It's really interesting. In all these years, probably a lot of you have never read the actual argument, the arguments for and against. There are two dissenters from the Roe versus Wade decision. But I want you to listen 
to what Blackman argued back in 1973 as the essence for why Rose should be allowed to take this baby's life, to, to be able to have that abortion. He wrote this. Maternity or additional offspring, they may force upon the woman, in this case, Roe, a distressful life. It will be a distressful life in the future. Psychological harm may be imminent. Mental and physical health may be taxed by child care. There is also the distress for all concerned associated with the unwanted child. And there is the problem of bringing a child into a family already unable psychologically and otherwise to care for it. Chief Blackman went on to argue in other cases, as in this one, the additional difficulties and continuing stigma of unwed motherhood may be involved. He's saying there might be psychological harm. There might be mental and physical health that will be taxed by child care. There will be distress for everyone concerned. And this child is unwanted. What's the focus of that argument? The focus of that argument is that this woman is going to be under stress, under problems. And I want you to think about it. In raising your own kids, when does your child produce more psychological stress, ladies? When do they stress more pressure on you physically? When do they exert more pressure on you emotionally? When do they tax your pocketbook more? Is it when you're carrying them for those nine months in your womb? Or is it after they're born? Tell me when it is. It's after they're born. Every one of those arguments I can use for you to... In fact, some of you moms probably want to kill your kids this week based upon that argument. I don't even think... Chief Justice Blackman was even aware of the door that he was opening because they were actually arguing just that the state didn't have a right to protect that child during the first trimester. Roe versus Wade divided the pregnancy up into three trimesters. And what Roe versus Wade really argued that during the first trimester, the woman could have an abortion for those reasons. In the second trimester, the state had a greater vested interest and then in the third trimester, then the state had a strong vested interest in protecting the life of the unborn. Roe versus Wade actually left open the question about when life began and argued very effusely about, well, we can't really figure it out. And they argued because we can't figure out, we'll let the child be killed, which doesn't make any logical sense. In fact, a lot of, of lawyers today in the 21st century are arguing that it's not only bad morality, but it's bad law. If you don't know something, if you're not sure of something, you don't just change hundreds of years of jurisprudence when you're not sure, especially when the stakes are so high. But what I want you to see underneath that, the pulsating rhythms of we live our life for self, because what you don't realize is that radical feminism was blowing across our country very powerfully. And what radical feminism was saying is we need to deliver women from having to have babies. We need to deliver women from the curse of being slowed down for nine months because they need to be able to charge into a career. They need to be able to have the same things that men have. It was very strong. And if, if you've been born into a home where men have hurt you or they've abused you or you've had a boss that's abused you and you've been hurt as a woman and out of that anger, when someone talks to you like that, everything moves inside of you, let's go for it. And so some of you actually can remember feeling as a woman, I can be superwoman and I can be just like a man and we can be delivered from all this dependency upon a man and, and having families and we can be delivered from motherhood. That atmosphere was blowing mightily. And some of you might even have been caught up in that. 
And what I believe, as I speak to you as an audience today, I believe that especially among the younger generation, that you're starting to see through the lie of living for your personal rights. You see, as I talked to you about being in a family as a child, I spoke to you about being a mom and dad, about being in a husband and wife, one of the underlying things that we're talking about as we talk about raising kids is that raising your kids is not going to be about yourself. Raising your kids is not going to be about meeting your needs. Raising your kids is going to demand tremendous sacrifice. What we're going to talk about is the fact that your kids don't even belong to you. As we turn back to Hebrews chapter 12 and pick up what we talked about last week, we laid a foundation last week, and we said that your parenting is going to be a long-distance race. If you children are in a home, you that are little ones, I want you to know that you're going to have your parents mentoring you, and, and, and sure, when you become an adult, they should set you free for you to be able to enter the world, but they still need to be wise guides. And what I want to get across to you, mom and dad, that you are in a long-distance race, and above everything else, you need to be focused on Jesus, not on yourself. You need to be focused on God the Father. And one of the great ideas that we talked to you about last week is that parenting begins and ends with God. God has been involved with you this week in parenting. God has had a purpose for your babies. He has a purpose for your kids. And I want us to get really serious about it. I don't just say that as a nice thing to say on a Sunday morning. I want it to become the guts of everything we live for. We want to be connected with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We want to sense what he's doing in our child's life. We want to walk with him through every experience. You say, well, Dave, how can I know for sure that God is parenting our kids? And if we turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews, as he was challenging these first century believers that were being tempted to wander away from their focus upon Jesus, he took them back to the heart of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And he quoted Hebrews chapter 5 right after God tells us to trust in him with all of our heart, to not lean upon our own understanding. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, right after that, it talks to us about honoring the Lord with our substance, and then it talks to us about the child training that the Lord is giving to each one of us, including our kids. And the writer of Hebrews quotes in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 3. Look what it says. My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. That would be don't make light of the Lord's fathering of you, his child training of you, his, his bringing you up according to his character. That's the idea of this word. Don't lose heart. The word that's used for discipline is the word that's used in, in Hebrew, and then it's translated in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible for the word that we would use for parenting, for being an effective parent and training your child. It says, don't make light of the Lord's child training. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. And there is a negative aspect where a wise daddy will rebuke his children when they do wrong. It shouldn't be just that, but it needs to involve that. And what it's saying here is that God's doing that today in our own lives. It says, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Contrary to our own culture, if you have a dad that never tells you what you're doing wrong, he never corrects you. He never rebukes you, which some of you were raised in homes like that, where dad did absolutely nothing to train you. And some of you were raised thinking, well, you know, man, that's awesome. My dad wrote checks and he gave me everything I wanted. But if your dad didn't point the way for you, if he didn't, if he didn't share his life with God with you, then he didn't love you. Because if you really love a child, if you really love that little baby that's born, then you take really seriously 
This fathering and mothering responsibility, and especially you fathers, take really seriously the way I express my love for my child is I train them. And that's going to be the writer of Hebrews' argument. In fact, what he does is he goes on to argue, he talks about two kinds of children. He talks about illegitimate kids. So the problem that we have today of absentee fathers and fathers that spray their reproductive fluids into places where they shouldn't go and little babies are born and then the fathers abandon them, that's not a new problem. It was prevalent throughout the Roman Empire. And the writer talked about that. They're called illegitimate children. Every society has had them. Here he talked about how if a father doesn't discipline their children, then they're showing that they view their children as being illegitimate. Look what it says. Endure hardship as discipline because God treats you as a child, as a son. For what sons are not disciplined by his father? If you were not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, notice how we can assume that a child in a normal home is going to be disciplined by their parent, especially their father. Then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits, the part of it that's going to live forever and ever, and as we respond to his discipline, we're going to live. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, and this is going to be our key verse on our, your kids and Jesus. This is our key verse. Our earthly fathers, in other words, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us always for our good, that's distressed, that we may share in his holiness. That's going to be our verse. Let me read it again. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplined us for our good that we may share in his holiness. This is what the writer is saying. He can assume that daddies father their kids. And he can just assume in his culture, especially among the believers, he can just assume that father's going to be involved. And as we begin this series on, on parenting, it begins with you daddies. And I want every daddy to understand that if you have held a Jonathan in your arms like I did, if you held your baby girl, Janae, like I did in my arms, one of the most awesome responsibilities I have is to never abandon them physically, emotionally, or spiritually and to be totally committed to bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And what Hebrews is telling us is, like we learned last week, is that God the Father is actually doing that in the life of our kids. So as a daddy, I'm walking right alongside of, really right behind, Lord willing, as I follow the lead of the ultimate daddy in heaven. And this is what's going to be our key verse. His goal is not that our kids be wealthy. It's not that they necessarily always have health. It's not that they be, are able to play for the Dallas Cowboys or they're able to go to an Ivy League school or go to A&M or whatever you have a dream for your kids. His goal is that he wants them to be like him in their character. But I want us to be praying about it. I want us to be discussing it together, especially as daddies coming alongside our kids. How can we help these kids to become godly? Parenting begins and ends with a mom and dad that their passion of their life is I want my child to become like God, to be Christ-like. Another way of talking about it and getting really serious about that. Now, as we think about following the lead of God, the question that at that very fundamental level, we have to decide what we believe about that little baby born in our home. And I want every one of you dads and moms, I want you to think about if you have a child, I want you to think about what you believe about that child right now this morning. 
Back in the 60s, when I was in university, even in a Christian school, there was a major stress. Maybe children aren't good. I was a chemistry major, so we would have debates about big scientific issues. One of the big scientific issues is contraceptives that come, and so that meant that we now had control for the first time over how many children we're going to have, and there was a tremendous push in our culture as one of the worst things facing our world is overpopulation. Anybody ever heard that? We're running out of resources. We're running out of the ability to take care of children. One of the worst things that can happen, and Malthus gave us these horrible things. When you get too many people, then people start cannibalizing each other. And so a really ethical thing began to not have any kids. And I remember being taught that. That was the atmosphere was blowing. Why was that atmosphere blowing? Was there really scientific evidence that we're running out of resources? Was there really scientific evidence that if you have four or five kids or if you have more than one kid that you've really sinned? No, there wasn't evidence for that. You know what was really happening? My four kids really make it hard for Mary and I to have the kind of cards we'd like to have. And I want you to know they're still making it hard. (laughs) They make it really hard for us to travel where we want to travel. My daughter still calls me up and her Honda, the brakes went out and it cost over $300 to get the stupid brakes fixed and I got to scramble around to try to find $347. That's still going on. What was really going on is is my generation was saying we want to be able to do what we want to be able to do. As a daddy, it was easy to say I want to be able to work and use my money to get what I want to get. And I want you to think hard about your own spirit towards that. As a man, what do you believe you work for? What's the drive of your life? What do you want to get? Like I I work hour and hour every week and almost all of my salary and almost all of my effort goes into giving it to Mary and the kids. And there's very little left for me. And you live in a culture that says that's really, really bad. So don't have very many kids because the more kids you have, the less you're going to have for you. It's a very powerful argument. What I want you to ask, if we're going to be biblical, what does God the Father think about that? And the very first thing I want to get across to you is think about raising kids. Is God, in the 21st century, is still saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to turn back to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, right after God talked to us about being made in his image, about what it means to be made in the image of God. He said, let us make men in the image of God. Let's make them male and female. And so God created them in the image of God. He made them male and female, created them. All those marvelous verses. And almost all the commentators in Genesis focus all about what it means to be made in the image of God, to reflect him in our personality, to be able to think, feel, and decide, to be able to have morals, to be able to believe in eternity. All of those marvelous things that make you distinct from an animal. But it's interesting in reading about maybe 15 different commentaries, a whole bunch of commentaries said nothing about what God went on to say. Look what God goes on and says after he says, let us make man in our own image. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. But I want you to look at the next verse. Look at verse 28. And God cursed them. God took away all their, their human potential. God made their lives that was going to be just disastrous. No, it says God blessed them. 
And the idea of blessing in Hebrew means that God made you happy. It made you doing what you were built to do. It says God bless them. In Hebrew, the word barak, the word for blessing, is a word that means this is right in tune with your creative design. If you get involved in this, it's going to bring you great joy. It's not necessarily going to be easy, especially after the fall, but it's still going to be a great, great fulfillment in your life. It says, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is called the cultural mandate. But we often think of command in a negative thing. It's like, oh God, you gave me another imperative, gave me another command. We often respond because of our fallen nature to commands like this. But this really is a blessed command. What the Lord is saying is that when you fall in love as a man with a woman and you want to marry her and you're going to make holy vows, What it's saying is that one of the purposes of your relationship, now it won't always happen. Sometimes the Lord doesn't give that gift and sometimes some of you as couples have struggled in agony because you want to have a child and the Lord just hasn't blessed you with that and we want to comfort you. We want to bless you. We might even have to wait till we get into eternity to find out why the Lord's taken you through such tough waters in that area. So I want to be really sensitive to you. But I also want you to know that the heart of God, at the center of his will, his normal will for us, is when you want to get married and you start to make love and you're rejoicing in each other's love, you become like him in generating new life. It's the miracle of having a child and it's still a blessing. Our babies are blessings. They are not little things that get in the way. They're not mesons and quarks and collections of neutrons and electrons. They're not just substances. That's what we're going to learn today. My society was wrong back in 73. If you're a woman especially, I hope you'll look at God's heart and you'll say, my society in focusing me on myself and taking away the the blessing and the joy of having children, my culture was just wrong. And I'm going to boast about the blessing. As I take care of my kids this week, yes, it's hard. Yes, it makes you tired. Yes, it's one of the toughest assignments you'll ever have. But I want you to know that your heavenly daddy blesses you in that. He says, be blessed. Blessed, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And by the way, it's one of the commands that we fulfilled pretty well. You've always rejoiced. You always bless little children. We want you to know we bless you. So I think as we think about skillful parenting in the 21st century, we begin, and I ask my heavenly daddy, daddy, what's your heart? Heavenly daddy, what's your heart towards a little baby? I'm holding my arms. He says, David, it's a blessing. He, she is a blessing. Daddy, if your wife has given you a child, bless her. And you hold that child in your arm and you bless her. You guide her. You say, why should I do that? Because your stereo is not your inheritance. Because your car is not your inheritance. Your house is not your inheritance. Your ability to go to the Cayman Islands is not your inheritance. You know what your inheritance is? You know what my, my inheritance from God is? It's my four kids. Dave, how do you know that? Turn over to Psalm. Turn over to Psalm 127. Our children are not only a blessed fulfillment of God's command to be fruitful and multiply, but they're also our inheritance and reward. Look at Psalm 127. 
Psalm 127 is a psalm about how you can be safe in life. Some of you guys are really uptight about, man, you're not sure you're going to make it. You know, life is threatening. You're not sure you're going to be able to resist some of your enemies that are coming against you. You're afraid you might be taken to court. You wonder what you can do about it. In the ancient world, it was a big problem. You know, they didn't have some of the, uh, the accoutrements of modern living. And so look what the writer says, especially when we get to verse 3. And he begins, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand against it in vain. So if you're in government, if you're not connected with God, it's not going to fly. If you're in business, in vain you rise up early. Some of you guys are all uptight. You rise up early, you stay up late. You're toiling for your food to eat, but you're not trusting the Lord. So you're all stressed out. You don't have time to go watch your kids play soccer. You don't have time to be able to just hold your kids. You don't have time to read them stories because you're working, working, working. Some of you are justifying and saying, man, if I don't stay at the grindstone, we're not going to eat. And the Lord says this morning, I, man, husband, father, I want you to trust me because the Lord will give to you even when you're sleeping. God's children can sleep. God's children can relax. And then he goes on and talks to us about our family values. Look what he says. He says sons or children. The word for sons in this context specifically does relate to sons, but it would involve the girls as well. Children are a heritage from the Lord. There it is. And the word heritage, I mean, it's our inheritance from the Lord. Where do we get our kids? Everybody tell me. From the? Is it by chance? Is it just the way things are? No, the personal loving God, it is a gift from him. It's our inheritance. How many of you want to get an inheritance? Inheritances are good things usually. It says that children are our reward from him. Like an arrow in the hand of a warrior, a son born in one's youth. Mary and I got married when we were young. And we had children when we were in our 20s. That's not a curse. That's a blessing. That means as I get old... There will be someone that will take care of me. That's the truth, Lord willing. I challenge you to have some girls along the way. <laughs> they take better care. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, only the Lord knows how full your quiver should be. This scripture is not telling us in a fallen world that we're like a friend of mine that had one kid after another every single year he had a child. When he got to number six, we said, time out. So we need to have a balance. The Lord's not telling us that we have to populate the world with just our individual family. But I still want you to get the feel of this blessing. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gates. What is he saying? When you get older and as life begins to mature, one of the things that's going to hold you together, one of the protections for you, one of the joys for you is to be able to get together at Christmas, for example, at a holiday, and for all your kids to come back home, and for them to bring your grandchildren, and every one of you that are older, like Billy and Asars, one, you could just ask Billy and Asa after this service, what's one of the greatest rewards, what's one of the greatest inheritances of your life, what's one of the greatest protections of your life? It's all those kids coming back home. And that's true for me. Brothers and sisters, I want every one of you daddies to think, before you think about going off with that secretary, before you get so ticked at your wife that you just want to get away from her, you want to get away from those kids, I want you to remember. I want you to think about a long-term thing. Listen to your heavenly daddy. He says, man, your life's not going to be found in going to bed with that beautiful secretary. It's not going to be found in, in being able to go to Cancun with some knockout sexual being that's going to make you eternally happy, you're going to find reward 
by hanging in there with the precious bride that the Lord gave you when you were young and the children that were produced over the course of your lifetime and you're going to grow older together and you're going to have the inheritance. You're going to have the reward. That's what the Lord is saying. He said, you are blessed if that happens. And I deal with, with men that are wrestling with that and women that are wrestling with that and they miss the reward. They tear all that up. They tear it up and throw it away because of what their culture is telling them. A woman will say, man, I just have to have my career. I've got all these talents. I have all my abilities and they're going, and they're, they're going to pot. I'm losing them and I just can't stand these crying kids anymore and fixing sniffly noses and, and, and cleaning up them when they get the flu. And man, I just, I just can't do this anymore. And your culture says, okay, it's okay. If it's hurting you and yourself and if it's putting stress upon you, go ahead and leave them. Don't do it. They're your inheritance. Don't throw it away. Don't throw away the reward. Yes, it's going to be hard. And I want you to know as we go further, God in heaven knows how bad it is. His first kids, his first kids turned out to be really rugged ones. And the first man born turned out to be a murderer. And the whole story of God parenting children throughout the beginning of the Old Testament through the New is God is entering into all the mess that parents have to deal with. But evidently, this is reality because God is doing it. And God is saying we're going to make it through. So don't throw away your reward. The next thing I want you to see is like when, you, when, when a couple makes love and they conceive. Like it says in Genesis 4, and Adam and Eve knew his wife. And Eve means living, the one that's going to breathe. Right after the fall of man in Genesis 4, it says, and Adam had intercourse with his wife. He knew his wife. He experienced his wife. And she conceived and she gave birth to Cain, to, to Cain, which meant I've now acquired. And she says, I have gotten a child from the Lord. She knew where children came from. Tragically, that child turned out to be a murderer. But we have Adam and Eve confessing their faith even after the fall that this is God's blessing. And the Lord did give them Abel. And even though Abel's life was snuffed out, then the Lord gave them Seth and God's promise continued. So what the scripture is teaching us very powerfully from the Old and New Testament is that when you conceive in your womb and that little baby begins to develop in you, God is superintending that. God is gutting that. I want you to turn to Psalm 139. It's some very powerful verses when we think about Roe versus Wade. And when you consider, like, one of the things in our own church family, I don't want it to happen in our church family that, that someone conceived that is going to give birth to a child in so many months, and they feel that the stress of this birth is going to be too much, and they feel that they just can't handle another one, and they secretly go out because they don't want to have this shame, and they, they have an abortion. I don't want that to happen among believers. You say, oh, it'll never happen. The abortion industry would be bankrupt if it wasn't for church-going women having abortions. It's not just out there. It's here. It's among believers. It's not just an unbelieving problem. I'm serious about that. If those that claim to claim what we believe about an intimate relationship with Jesus and the joy of what God can do, if they didn't have abortions... The abortion industry wouldn't be able to make it financially. Because you can look at the numbers. It's just like divorce. Just like divorce. And one of the things that I'm praying as an elder is, is we're going to go counter to that. Our marriages are not going to divide the same way they do in unbelieving homes. We're not going to have abortions. Because we're going to really believe what our Heavenly Daddy said. Look what our Heavenly Daddy says in Psalm 139. This is just an incredible passage. And remember, this was written probably a thousand years before Jesus came, before they had ultrasound, before they knew all this. And, and the, the psalmist is talking. 
in Psalm 139 about the wonder of his body. And it talks about God in Psalm 139 being able to see him in his innermost being. Look at verse 13. He's writing, it says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depth of the earth, it pictures, ladies, it pictures your womb as being like the hidden place, like a buried treasure is the idea. Like your womb is having this priceless treasure. That's what the psalmist's picture is. It's the dark place. And in the Old Testament, they they didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't know what was going on. But they're picturing that Yahweh, the covenant God, is at work in your womb. That little baby is conceived. And then as it begins to divide, it says, I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depth of the earth. Your eyes, God's eyes, saw my unformed baby, my unformed body. God's eyes. So God's the one. His eyes would be the idea that he is looking at this. He's, he's guiding it. He's overseeing it. Notice what else it says. All the days ordained for me were already written in your book before one of them came to be. Rose baby that you now know is a real woman, Norma McCorvey. And she's become a believer. She is now against abortion. The little baby that was being formed in Norma's womb, God knew that baby's days. And it was snuffed out. And that's the mystery of this. Because God's not saying, well, that was a good thing. I had all the days, but you know, I knew the days would be short. It's not that idea. The idea is that God has a plan for this child. He's like a loving artist, a loving creator that wants to give birth to this child and then bring it into full maturity and has a great plan for them. And yet we in our sins step in and because of our pride and our selfishness, we snuff it out. When your little babies, like little Blythe, that was born in Courtney's womb, my first granddaughter, the Lord knows her days. He knew that she would have rest. It's not He's not pleased with that, but he, it hasn't caught him by surprise. He knew what happened genetically when the MECP2 protein wasn't formed exactly right, and he knew all of that. And he has a plan for little Blythe. He has a plan for little Fiona. He has a plan for little Leela. All of my granddaughters, he has a plan for your kids. That's what it's saying. And that's this idea of parenting, that we're parenting with God, that he has this plan. We want to walk in that. Look what it says. How precious for me are your thoughts of God. How vast are the sum of them. What he's saying, I'm just blown away from the fact that this loving daddy in heaven from the time that our little child is conceived and the psalmist is saying, when I was conceived, that the heavenly daddy was superintending that womb development and guiding each step. So when we hear people that want to take away from the value of that precious little human life that's developing, we need to understand God's heart towards it. He is the one that's guiding that shaping and developing. He's the one that's creating that miracle. You say, well, Dave, what you've been sharing is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's Old Testament. Children being an inheritance in a word, we don't live in, a, in an agrarian culture anymore. I don't need a bunch of strapping sons to pull my plow. In fact, in the modern world, it just doesn't apply anymore, doesn't it? If anybody in the 21st century, now you ladies can look at ultrasound and it's husbands we can watch with you. And we can almost follow this process. We know more about it than the psalmist ever dreamed. If you're into that as a medical doctor, you will say the wonder of it all just becomes more wonderful every day. 
But I want you to know as we close today that it's not just an Old Testament thing. It wasn't just for Israel where God says children are one of the major purposes of our married life together. The guts of what I'm saying, our society has divided married life having sexual relationship together from children. It has. And it's happened even in my own heart. Mary's talked to me recently. Like I, I often do premarital counseling. I always talk to couples about the role of the husband. I always talk to the couple about the role of the wife. I talk about finances. We share together about finances. We share together about communication. We share together about sexuality. But I want to share something with you. In my own heart, I've often felt we don't need to spend a session about being fruitful and multiply. Because we need to get the couple settled. And later on, we'll talk about kids. And Mary came to me and said, you know, Dave, in light of the counting that we're doing, that's wrong. We need to talk with couples before they get married. Because that's one of the major purposes of marriage. You see, our culture has said that the purpose of your marriage is just to enjoy each other. No, it isn't. It is to enjoy each other, but that's not the only purpose for it. The purpose of your marriage is not about you. It's about this incredible thing called family. And, and it's not that the Lord's going to give that to everybody, but the fact that he doesn't give that to everybody shouldn't mean that it dulls us from understanding what his heart really is and what he's really moving for and what he's still committed to. You see, in the early church, when Paul wanted to give instruction to the women, I want you to see what he says. And this is New Testament, not Old Testament. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, he's talking to some young widows. And these young widows have gone through the agony of losing their husband. And the church is debating how to take care of them. And the Apostle Paul says, so I counsel, in verse 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, so I counsel younger widows, look at this. I counsel them to stay independent, to go out and get a really top-flight job, to make sure that they have plastic surgery until they're 80. So that they can find happy with a much younger man? No, I counsel, look at I counsel younger widows to marry. Not a bad thing. I counsel younger women to marry. And I think if Paul were sitting here today, he would say this is God's inspired word. It's a beautiful thing for a younger woman, even a younger widow, she needs to marry. To make sure she doesn't have the agony of having kids. Notice, no, Paul says, no, no, to have children to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. In the New Testament church, turn over a little bit more to Titus chapter 2. You that are older, like some of you that are grandmas and some of you that have already raised your kids, you wonder like, what do I do now? Isn't it time for me to go down to the, down to the valley and be able to have a really good time? And man, I can go to Disney World now. And I don't even have to have kids with me. I can just enjoy it for myself. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? I'm old. I don't want, I, my nest is empty. I've already done it. I need to leave. Should you leave? No, look what it says. Titus chapter 2. Listen to this. It's really important. It says, Likewise, teach the older women, the mature women, to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. What is good? Does Bella Abzug teach you what is good? Does Gloria Sonnen teach you what is good? You need to decide. Because you're only going to get to do this one time. Mary and I only got to get married once when we were young. We only got to decide whether we would have our kids when we were young as our marriage developed, we only got to do this once, and it's gone. When I look at pictures, it looks like Mary and I were just sitting at Letchworth Park, falling in love with each other. When, in one part of my life, it's like it happened yesterday, and now I got little granddaughters. I'm holding my arms. I know you have old guys like me tell you that all the time, but it's the truth. 
And you got to decide what is good. Mary and I were listening to voices back in the 60s. We were listening to voices in the 70s. And we had to decide what we were going to believe was true. It says, what we teach, what is good. They can train the younger women to love their husbands. We need older women that will train younger women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled and pure. I want us, as we begin this series about parenting, i got to nail it down. As a husband, I want you to know that my kids are a treasure. Mary's my greatest gift from the Lord, and then right underneath them are Jonathan, Joel, Joshua, and Janae. And is it easy to raise them? No. But are they a reward? You bet. And I'm glad that the Lord blessed Mary's womb, and she was fruitful, and we multiplied, and I'm so thankful that it's going to multiply in the next generation. I've got a, a member of our family who wrote an email to our family and it's some friends. Jimmy is my daughter-in-law's brother. They already have a beautiful little girl uh, named Meg that's running all over the place. And Rachel became pregnant. And Rachel has struggles in pregnancy. She has struggles in holding those babies. And little Ava was born early, really early. She was so little that Jimmy could take his wedding ring and could slide it all the way up to her elbow. And this is what Jimmy just wrote to his little girl. He says, my dear little Ava. Ava is the name of the little preemie. I know that it will be years before you can read this letter. But a part of me wishes that you could read and understand it right now. You were such a miracle of God. Before you were even conceived, your mom and I called you forth in obedience to what Jesus had showed me to do for you. I remember the day vividly. I was sitting on a big sofa in the guest room in Lubbock, Texas, praying and reading the Bible and just trying to spend time with the Lord. It's not an everyday thing that I hear from him. Sometimes it's weeks, sometimes even months. But this particular chilly morning in Lubbock, I heard from him. He said to me, pick two names, one for a boy and one for a girl. And that your mom and I were going to have at least two more children, that it was important that we picked the names and and called and prayed for them. I didn't know what your name was supposed to be, but I did hear what your brother's name should be. It should be Joseph, which in Hebrew means he will act. After talking with your mama, what I heard she told me is that she always loved the name Ava. I felt a peace about it and thought it was a pretty name. So then I looked up the meaning of your name. Under the A's, I found Ava. I still have the name and meaning printed. Ava. It's from the name Eve, meaning to breathe or to live, to have life. It was then that we decided that your name would be Ava. I never realized how much I would depend on that promise of what your name means. It's been 42 days, and you're still depending on a ventilator to breathe. I know in my heart that you will come off it soon, and this time it will be successful. I can only imagine seeing you breathing on your own, not struggling, not working so hard, just doing what you were created to do, to breathe, to live, to have life abundantly. I've only missed one day of seeing you at the hospital, and I think about you all the time. I can't wait until it's evening, and I go up to your little incubator and say, Hi, baby. Hi, Daddy. It's Daddy. I love you. I missed you. And I touch your little head, your little nose, your little raised eyebrows, your reddish brown hair, your beautiful spirit. 
I sometimes look at you and I can't even comprehend that our society doesn't truly value you. That even older babies, older babies than you are, suddenly, by broken men and broken women, in moments are forced to stop breathing, to stop living, to stop having life. It's almost unimaginable. It hurts even think about it. I pray for you every day, and so many others are praying as well. People that don't even know you, people that have never seen you, they're all thinking and praying for you. You now weigh 2 pounds, 14 ounces. It's hard to believe that you once weighed 50% less than that. You have a long way to go, Ava, but I know you will make it. You will make me proud every day. I love being your daddy. Jimmy's letter expresses what I wanted to the congregation. I want daddies like Jimmy that talk to Jesus and believe that Jesus gives them their child. And even if the child's premature and all the cost and all the agony, that we're going to do everything we can to help that child to live, to breathe. Because God's beautiful created world is not running out of resources. We're filled with selfishness. God's filled with abundance. God is still telling us little Ava's are rewards and inheritances. He's still telling us it's great to have our kids. So as a daddy, as a mommy today, I can't teach you anything about your kids unless you love them, unless you think they're great gifts, unless you think of them as a treasure. And that's what I'm going to pray that the Spirit of God is going to just multiply again and again in our church family. 